Thanks for your singing, Alan and Dylan. I really enjoy that last song. God's got a smiling face behind every bitter providence that he has for us in our lives. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, our text for today might be one of the most surprising sections in uh, Jesus's ministry. In our text, Jesus curses a fig tree and it withers up. I believe this is the only destructive miracle that the Lord does that's recorded in the New Testament Gospels. Every other time that Jesus uses his miraculous power, he used it as an act of compassion or an act of mercy, an act of grace. But here Jesus uses his power to destroy. So let's read our text for this morning, and we'll see this with our own eyes. Matthew 21, we're going to look at verses 18 to 22 this morning. Matthew 21, starting in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. At first glance, this is a a puzzling text. Why would Jesus curse a tree for not having fruit? Now, it's even more difficult for us if we consider the parallel passage in Mark. And so let's, let's go over to the passage in Mark. This is Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Mark 11, let's start in verse 12. On the following day, and this is the day after Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. This is either now Monday or Tuesday, the day after the triumphal entry. On the following day, when they came up from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find, uh, find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now Mark gives us more of a chronology here. Jesus cursed the tree in the morning of the day that he went to clear the temple. Then after that, and we we looked at the temple clearing last week in Matthew, after that, if you look down, if you kind of skip over the temple clearing, skip down to verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
Now, what makes this even more puzzling for us is Mark's comment in verse 13, for it was not the season for figs. And so Jesus curses the tree when it would seem, at least to the uninitiated on the knowledge of uh, how uh, fig trees kind of function in Israel, it would seem that the, the tree should not have had figs. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Now, Matthew condensed the story so that it, it seems like it happened all at once, but actually Matthew doesn't say anything about the chronology, only that it was early in the morning when Jesus cursed the tree. Now, I've used the word cursed a number of times already, and this is what Jesus does here to say, at least as Matthew puts it, may no fruit ever come from you again so that the tree withers at once. That's a form of a curse. And Peter himself, if you're still in Mark, in verse 21, he uses that word. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And so Jesus cursed this fig tree. Now, why does he curse this tree that he created? The way to begin to understand this, at least I believe, is to notice where this is in the context. And the context is the same whether you're in Matthew or in Mark. Mark gives us, like I said, Mark gives us the, the fuller chronology of what happened. Jesus came to Jerusalem on Sunday or Monday, and he was hailed with Hosanna to the son of David. The next day in the morning on the, on the way back to the city, he cursed the tree. <clears throat> Remember that each night he was, he was spending the evenings in, in Bethany, and so he cursed the tree, and then he went to the temple, and he cleared the temple, and he said, remember there, this is Matthew 21, 13, he said as he cleared the temple, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so instead of fellowship with God in prayer, what did Jesus find? He found that the temple was a den of robbers, that it was a hideout for evil people. Just like in Jeremiah's day when the people would live in sin all week but then gather at the temple and pretend to honor Yahweh, so it was in Jesus' day. And there was a great show of reverence, but it was merely hypocrisy. It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. It was a cover for the sin and the corruption in the hearts of the people. And so just like bandits hide from the authorities in their caves, so these hypocrites hid their sins kind of in full sight at the temple. And so on Monday, Jesus rode in on a donkey foal, showing himself to be king on Tuesday, Jesus cleared out the temple in another display of his authority. We said that it, it showed his authority over the temple. Remember, Jesus is a priest. In fact, I want you to turn, let's just turn back to, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> so Monday, Jesus is proclaimed as king. Tuesday, Jesus is proclaimed as priest. I want you to look right now, Matthew 12 and verse 6. Jesus says there, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Something greater than the temple is here. So he's a king, he's priest. And now on, on Wednesday, we see the result of his curse. The tree is withered the next morning as Peter notices it. 
And what this is then is another demonstration of Jesus's authority. Another demonstration of Jesus's authority. That's how I think we need to understand this cursing of the fig tree. Now, many commentators, they called this an acted parable. An acted parable. Jesus is showing his disciples his authority, but it's not just his authority over a fig tree. You know, if you think about it, they had no need to see that. And we have no need to see that either. We've seen time and time again Jesus' power over nature. And so the fig tree ends up representing something. And whatever that something is, Jesus is showing his disciples that he has authority to bring judgment and destruction to it. And not only is Jesus showing this, but Matthew and Mark are showing us this as well. Of all the things that Jesus did, Matthew and Mark want us to see this cursing of the fig tree. And I find it very interesting that this acted parable, if we're going to call it that, This acted parable is very reminiscent of the strange actions of some of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is showing his authority as a prophet. Now, I just read Matthew 12 and verse 16, and I believe you're there. I tell you again, sorry, Matthew 12, 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, Jesus made three statements like that in chapter 12. And so if you just look down to chapter 12, I'll start reading in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now Jesus says something, which seems to be a a veiled way to speak about himself, or maybe of his ministry, or, or we might even say here, his offices. And so something greater than the temple, something greater than Jonah the prophet, and something greater than Solomon the king is here. Solomon, of course, is the great king, the son of David. Jonah was a prophet. And his three days and three nights in the fish is going to foreshadow Christ's three days in the grave. And the temple points to the priests and their ministry. And so if you're with me here, if you're kind of following along as I'm kind of making, trying to connect these pieces, you're seeing that Jesus is greater than prophet, priest, and king. And when he came to Jerusalem, he presented himself as having authority in those three offices. Although we have to acknowledge here that the city will not have seen the sign of the fig tree, but Matthew and Mark, they want us to see it. And so Jesus is the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah. He is king, he is priest, he is prophet. 
And he is the greatest of all three of these offices. Now, I had asked earlier, why did Jesus curse this tree? And the context shows us then these three dramatic actions which point to Jesus' authority as king, priest, and prophet. Remember the question they ask, I don't know if you're back in Matthew 21, but let's go back over there. The, The question they ask right after all of what we've seen here in these kind of three acts In verse 23, when when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And so we've got these three dramatic actions which point to Jesus' authority as king, as priest, and now as prophet. But I think we need to go even deeper into this yet. Because Jesus could have showed that he was a prophet or he could have showed his authority as a prophet in another way. In fact, the people were calling him a prophet already. If you look back at verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So yes, Jesus showed his authority as a prophet by cursing the fig tree, but why? Why? And the answer goes back to what we said earlier, that it is that the fig tree ends up representing something. The fig tree represents something. Now, this is an area where we have to be very careful in our interpretation. Because the tree doesn't say what the, or or sorry, the text doesn't say what the tree represents. And many interpreters have gone too far with this and they've said that the fig represents Israel and therefore God is done with Israel and all of his promises to the nation are now transferred to the church. And the literal and the original meaning of those promises is now transformed to new spiritualized meanings and God is done with Israel and it's been replaced by the church. And I would say to all of that that that's an awful lot of weight to put on a fig tree metaphor with no referent. You see, if you're going to say that the unchanging God's unchangeable promises which he swore by himself would not change, have changed based on the fact that Jesus cursed a fig tree, I'd say you're barking up the wrong tree. Some interpreters think this is, <laughs> you're welcome. Some interpreters think that this fig tree can, can take the mountain of God's promises and can say be taken up and thrown into the sea and that it will happen. So to kind of show you that that's not the case, I want you to turn to some later revelation. Let's go to just to Romans 11, just to show this really quick. Um, Romans 11, let's start looking at verse 25. Good word for us Gentiles here. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, through this partial hardening, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness in Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name is Israel. 
And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so Paul believes that this scripture will yet be fulfilled when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, Israel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made a covenant with Israel. God made a covenant with Jacob. And before that, he made covenants with Abraham and Isaac. And his promises, or as it says in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so one day, God will fulfill his plans and his promises to Israel. So we don't want to go that far And so we need to ask then, well, how do we understand the parable, the acted parable of the fig tree? And I think what we need to do then is we need to tie it to that generation of Israel. Now, we were already just in Matthew chapter 12. And again, if you, if we remember from verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, the current generation of Israel that was living at the time of Jesus, the men of Nineveh are going to condemn them for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And it would be that generation, or as chapter 12 just said, this generation, the generation of Jesus' day who would, in 40 years from the day that all of this is happening, in 70 AD, they would see the temple destroyed by the Roman army. You see, Jesus came looking for fruit. He was looking for fruit in Israel, and he was looking for fruit on the fig tree. And Jesus cursed the fruitless fig, which pictured that generation of Israel who bore no spiritual fruit. They had the look, whether we think about the tree or whether we think about Israel, they both had the look of fruitfulness in their temple observance, in their law-keeping, just as the fig tree had the look of fruit and fruitfulness with the abundance of leaves. And so Jesus came looking for fruit and finding none, he uttered the curse, may no fruit ever come from you again. And similarly, Jesus came to Israel looking for the fruit of repentance, looking for the fruit of genuine faith, looking for the fruit of transformed lives and not finding it, he would leave them desolate and that generation would not see the kingdom, they would be cursed. Now, to kind of see this pattern already in the book of Matthew, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This is Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. If we start in verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's message. If we jump down to to verse 7 of chapter 3, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, 
He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John wanted to see fruit. He wanted to see evidence of repentance. And what we see is that Jesus' message was the same. And so if you, if you go over to chapter 4 and look at verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly what John the Baptist preached. And if we go into the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Jesus warned about false prophets who look like sheep, but are in reality wolves. And in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by what? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's word for word what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Now, fruit is the produce of the life. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is thinking of a life of obedience, a life that's transformed by God's grace, a life of following Jesus Christ as a disciple. And this idea of bearing fruit or Jesus looking for good fruit, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is where our text today should begin to impact us. This is where the, the application points kind of meet together. You see, we are required to bear good fruit. And the evidence of salvation is a life of bearing fruit. And what we see in our text is Jesus' attitude to a kind of hypocrisy that appears to be religious, but in reality is contrary to him. We see what Jesus thinks of fruitlessness. He curses it. A professing believer who bears no fruit is not a believer at all. And in the end, such a one will be cut off and thrown into the fire. That's speaking about hell. Now, we have to be very careful how we define no fruit as we start to think about this. Some of us are too quick to judge ourselves as fruitless. And I could almost like pick off certain people in this moment and just kind of go, here's one, here's one, here's one. I'm not even scared to look at you right now. But some of us are, are very quick to judge ourselves as fruitless. But on the other hand, there's definitely a tendency in the modern evangelical church, and I even want to say in the, in the kind of broadly speaking modern Christian tradition, just very, very broadly speaking Christian tradition of our day, there's a tendency to, to minimize any requirement for fruit 
or even to minimize any requirement for repentance. So that as long as someone at some point in their life made a profession of faith, many are willing to declare them as true believers despite an absolute lack of any fruit. And so let me repeat again then, a professing believer who bears no fruit is not a believer at all. And in the end, such a one, according to Jesus and according to John the Baptist, will be cut off and thrown into the fire of hell. And this thought should cause us to tremble. And it should motivate us then to pursue a life of fruitfulness to the glory of God. And thankfully, through the disciples' amazement, the Lord provides the remedy for fruitlessness in our text as well. And the remedy is going to be believing prayer. I called this message the curse on fruitlessness and its cure. The curse on fruit, fruitlessness and its cure. And so let's, let's get right into it then. That was kind of an introduction. Let's go back to Matthew 21. And let's see, first of all, the curse on unbelieving fruitlessness. And we're going to spend the majority of our time here. Verses 18 and 19. The curse on unbelieving fruitlessness. Look at the text again. In the morning... As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now I'm calling this unbelieving fruitlessness because Israel, or if we want to think about it this way, Jerusalem, they have not believed. Now, we've seen that already in Matthew, and, and we'll see it again in this final section. The, even the Galilean crowds that hailed Jesus uh, two days ago as son of David, they seem to think of him only as a prophet. And again, this scene is not ultimately about the fig tree. It represents something, and that something is fruitlessness, and fruitlessness is the result of unbelief. Now, in the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, and this was the morning of the temple cleansing, he was hungry. And this shows us his humanity. He was God, but he took on and lived through a completely human nature, and he remained God. And so the, the person of God the Son lived through two natures as both God and man. And here we see his humanity. He became hungry. Now, it was Passover week, sometime around March, April, just like our kind of resurrection weekend is today, March, April, Passover week. And March, April is much milder in, in Israel than it typically is here. But it's still early for figs in and around Jerusalem. But Jesus saw a tree in leaf. Now, figs typically begin to grow before the leaves. And so to see leaves, one would expect to find fruit as well. Figs come with and before the leaves. Now these early figs, they weren't fully developed yet, and apparently they weren't tasty until about June, but they were fully edible. And so you could satisfy your hunger on some of these, and they were even gathered at this time and sold for various uses, I'm not sure what. 
In the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, Harrison says, quote, when the leaves are fully developed, the fruit ought to be mature also. Now he's talking about the kind of the pre-fruit that would grow on these trees, but when the leaves are fully developed, the fruit ought to be mature also. But if a tree with leaves has no fruit, it will be barren for the entire season, end quote. And so this tree made an outward sign of having fruit, but in fact, it bore none. Again, Harrison says, quote, thus the fig tree was cursed for its pretentiousness, predicting the fate of the fruitless Jewish nation, end quote. Pretentiousness means attempting to impress by affecting greater importance, talent, culture than is actually possessed. And so pretentiousness, this idea of, of trying to look like one has greater talent or greater importance or greater culture than, than the person actually has, pretentiousness is really a great word to describe this situation. You see, the tree looked so promising. A single tree along the road and it's in leaf and here's, here's some fruit. There's going to be fruit because there's leaves and so Jesus goes to satisfy his hunger but there was no fruit. And if you think about it, Israel looked so similar. Look at all the worshipers gathered for Passover. They traveled from afar to honor the God of Israel. And among them were the Pharisees who were known for their meticulous obedience to Yahweh's law and they were diligent and wealthy. They were, they were blessed by God in the people's eyes. And there were the scribes, they were expert interpreters, keepers of the word of God, students of the law, and the prophets, and the writing, they were Bible scholars, we might call them, and they were there as well. And there were priests whose job it was to pray for the people and make atonement for their sins. And these all, with a great multitude of thousands and thousands of people, came in obedience to God's commands. And they sang the songs, traditionally they sang Psalms 13, 113 to 118. And they remembered the mighty acts of God to bring them out of Egypt. That's what the Passover celebrated. Many churches would be thrilled to have such a promising gathering. Look at all of the, the worshipers that have come. Look at all the people. They've come to worship. They've come in obedience. They've come with songs of joy and praise to Yahweh, but it was all nothing. It was pretension. They're affecting a greater devotion to God than they actually possessed. It's all a show. They're looking good on the outside, but on the inside, it's wickedness. It's only leaves. It's only leaves. And all of it was hiding an inner hostility to God that in less than three days would falsely try the Son of God and condemn him to death and crucify him. These people that looked so good on the outside celebrating would, if the circumstances were right, they would kill the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. Peter would say to them after the resurrection in Acts chapter 2, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, 
A man attested to you by God with mighty wonder, works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in chapter 4, he said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Note that word, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. That's what the Passover was. It was a gathering against Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And so the whole gathering, which looked so marvelously for God, and for his worship, and for his praise, and for his glory, was in reality against him and against his purposes. Again, it was utter hypocrisy. It was a den of robbers pretending to be worshipers. It was only leaves, and it was worthy to be cursed. Now, there's a parallel to this in Hebrews chapter 6, and you could you could turn there if you wanted. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. It's kind of in a metaphor of the land. And it says there, For the land, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Then in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And I would say the same as the author of Hebrews to you this morning, though we speak in this way, beloved, We are sure of better things, in your case, things that belong to salvation. But we need to take these warnings to heart, even if it's just to encourage us and and motivate us to pursue a life of fuller fruitfulness. We need to take these warnings to heart, see Israel, generally speaking, and and we're really broadly speaking here, Israel was unsaved. They had no fruit. They had zero fruit. Now, there were exceptions. We've got Peter and James and John. We've got the 12 disciples minus Judas, so the 11. We've got the, the three Marys at the cross that we looked at a few weeks ago. There's exceptions, but, but broadly speaking, Israel had no fruit. And we need to examine ourselves, I believe, this morning. What do we actually possess when it comes to true religion? Think about that for yourself. What do you actually possess when it comes to true religion? Israel, by and large, had the outward forms of worship, but inwardly they were enemies of God. Now think about this. They would put up with a lot of religious rules. 
They would put up with a lot of ceremonies. They would come a long way from all over the world to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but they would not put away their sins. They would obey the traditions of their fathers, but they would not submit to the only son from the father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why hypocrisy is so difficult to discern. Because in hypocrisy, in this kind of a pretension, there's a, there's a willingness to do certain things. And there's a desire to look good outwardly. There's a desire to conform, but inside... There's a hostility inside. There's a dislike for the commandments of God. And somewhere, there's a line that the hypocrite has. And they will go this far, but no further. They'll give up much for the sake of religion, but they won't do that. Whatever that is. And there will be certain sins that they cling to. Certain areas of obedience that they refuse to follow through on. And so be careful, my friends. Jesus spoke of a broad road, and that broad road leads to where? Leads to destruction. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And so we need to be very careful about this, brethren, that, we, that we're on this narrow way. Because there's a broad way that leads to destruction and it's an easy way. Every true believer, on the other hand, has given up everything to follow Christ. We have seen his beauty. We have come to love him. We see in him exactly what we need as guilty sinners before a holy God. There's an exact fit between what we need and all of who he is and what he has done for us. There's this, this perfect fit between us. And therefore we count all things lost for the sake of Christ because nothing compares to him. Nothing is more important than honoring our Savior. And so out of gratitude for our salvation, we live for Jesus' sake and we seek to glorify God with our lives. And how do we do that? Well, how do we glorify God with our lives? By living according to his commandments. By being transformed by his word. By turning away from sin and transgression and iniquity by being conformed into the image of his son. Now we recognize that we don't do this perfectly. See, that's a, a battle throughout our lives. There's going to be many a defeat, many a setback. And we will fail and fall and it'll be sometimes two steps forward and, and three steps back. But by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the renewed heart that has been planted in us in our regeneration, we will overcome bit by bit, little by little, here a little, there a little. And we will grow and we will bear fruit. And if we look back on a long life lived in that way, we'll be able to see that there was some growth and some fruit. 
And it might not be as much as we would have wanted, but, but it's, it's going to be there. There's going to be a change. It's going to be evident that we were disciples of Jesus Christ and that we loved him and that we served him in our lives. Remember the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. There were three soils there that represented the unbeliever. And they represented the unsaved person. And ultimately, they represented the unfruitful person. And in every case, something caused the word of God to bear no fruit in the life of the three people that those soils represented. And so in the one case, the devil snatched away the word of God. And in another case, the love of comfort, the flesh caused a lack of perseverance in trials. And in a third case, the love of the world choked the word so that it proved unfruitful. But you remember the good soil. Matthew 13, 23 says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word of God and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. The parallel in Mark 4.20 has, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Luke 18.15 says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And if we put it together, the true believer overcomes this, uh, Satan, the flesh, and the world. And we are those who hear the word and accept it. We hear it and understand it. We hold fast to it with an honest and good heart, which speaks to our regeneration. And we bear fruit with patience. Remember when we looked at that passage, we saw that the, the amount of fruit there points to a supernatural work of God in the life of a believer in, in regeneration. And so we could ask then, well, what, what is fruit? What is fruit? And I think it's simply the word of God working in our lives. The word of God working in our lives. And it starts with understanding, believing, and accepting the gospel. With accepting the fact that we are sinners, that God is holy. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty on our behalf, that he was God and man. And, and then responding to that message with repentance and faith. Repentance, turning away from sin and turning towards God. And faith, trusting in in Jesus Christ to save you and deliver you from the wrath of God. We could talk about it as turning and trusting. And that's really where the, the start of this fruit is. And from that moment on, from that moment of turning and trusting, God continues to work in our lives by his word. But, but we ourselves also must be diligent to read the word and apply the word and obey the word. And so there's a responsibility on our part. And yet God is going to work in our lives if we've truly believed the gospel. Now there's so much more that we could say about all this, but we, we really need to move along here. The disciples were amazed that the fig tree withered at once. And they don't yet understand the significance of Jesus' action. And I don't think they're going to understand this until after the resurrection. 
in verse 20 of our text, and we could go back there if we're not there. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answers there what I would call a somewhat of a shallow question on the whole thing. He answers their question in verses 21 and 22, and it shows the opposite of this fruitlessness. Remember again what Jesus said when he cleared the temple, quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7. He said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And this is what Jesus was looking for. This was the the fruit that he was looking for. And so he takes an opportunity to teach his disciples about believing prayer and what can be accomplished through it. And we called this here, number two, the cure of believing prayer. So we saw the curse on unbelieving fruitfulness. Now number two, the cure of believing prayer. We just looked at verse 20. This is 21 and 22. And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The cure for fruitlessness is faith. Faith that prays. Faith that prays. Faith that fellowships with God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in this section. I've used up most of our time already, but I want you to turn back to Matthew 17 because we've, we've already seen a very similar passage and saying from our Lord in Matthew 17, starting in verse 14, this, this is where the Lord taught us about the power of faith. Remember, they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and when they came to the crowd, Jesus Peter, James, and John, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the idea of moving a mountain was proverbial for accomplishing the impossible. So when Jesus talks about moving a mountain or saying to a mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, he's, he's speaking about doing something that's impossible, accomplishing what seemed to be undoable. And Jesus says, it can be done. You can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Impossible things can be done if 
And here's the key, if you have faith and do not doubt. Again, that's right from verse 21 of our text. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, and so forth. Now in both passages, in Matthew 21 and in Matthew 17 and verse 20, Jesus emphasizes this statement with, truly I say to you. And so Jesus wants us to know that we can rely on this statement. And whenever he says, truly I say to you, he's, he's highlighting an important truth for us, for his disciples. And so this is important. This is something that we can rely on. And let's follow the logic here if we can. Verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. So not only will we do to the fig tree, now, you know, in other words, it implies that we will do this to the fig tree. Now, we need to ask ourselves, does this mean that we should all go out of here today and curse a poplar tree? Because we don't have fig trees around here. Should we all kind of leave here and curse a poplar tree and see a a great sign from heaven? Well, I don't think so. Well, why not, Mike? It says, Jesus said, you'll not only do that. Well, why should we not do that? Why do we not go out of here and curse trees this afternoon? Why not curse a tree on the way home? And Jesus says we could if we have faith. Maybe it would prove the danger of, of being fruitless to all of our friends. But think about it here. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus do this? Well, he was showing his disciples and ultimately he was showing us his authority. Remember earlier that we read in chapter 12, he had refused to give the Pharisees a sign. He wasn't going to give them a sign. And he didn't do this sign publicly. He did this thing privately as far as we know. And what I'm getting at here is that Jesus did this as part of his mission as part of his mission to prove that he was the Messiah, as part of his work of warning every generation what will happen if we are fruitless professors of Christ. And so we also will do such things, or or let me say, we also will receive such answers to prayer. There's, There's no power in us to do anything. And so this is speaking really about answers to prayer. We will receive such answers to prayer when we ask in faith, when we ask for things that are part of our mission. And so that seems to be the idea that when we're, when we're praying for things that are according to God's will that He wants us to do, that we know that He wants us to do, we will receive such answers to prayer. But Jesus goes further here. He says, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, it will happen. And the idea being is that we will do even more difficult things, yea, even impossible things will be done in answer to prayer. Now, in the entire history of the church, as far as we know, no disciple of Jesus Christ has ever literally moved a mountain by prayer. And the reason would be is because it's not our mission. And we know from Moses and we know from the ministry of Jesus that signs and wonders won't convince anyone 
to do anything. Just think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt and all of the mighty works that they saw. It didn't create faith. Same with Jesus and all of the mighty works that he did and we've still got Jerusalem in utter unbelief and fruitlessness. And so verse 22 is not a blank check from heaven to get whatever we want. Again, look at verse 22. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so we need to think about this faith. Faith is trusting God. Faith is believing God. And where do we hear God speak that we might believe? Well, it's not in our hearts in a still small voice. We don't hear God speak in a strong emotional impression that we have that he wants us to do this or that or the other thing. We hear God speak in his word. And it's there that we hear the voice of God and we learn who he is and we learn what he will do and we learn what he would have us do. We learn our mission and we learn the goals that we should have and our purpose to bring him glory in the world. And we learn how he would do that through his people. And what this means is that we're not to try to work up some faith to to do some great thing. We're simply to trust God to accomplish his will through us. And we're to go to him then in prayer. And that's important. We, we need to emphasize that we need to pray. We need to pray if we're going to see this done in our lives. We need to go to him and prayer and we need to ask him about his will, ask him to fulfill his purposes through us. And we do need to trust him and we do need to not doubt, but we also must recognize that such faith comes from God through his word. Just like the faith of our salvation came from God, it was a gift from God, so our faith and prayer comes from him as well. And it's going to grow as we understand and learn him from his word. D.A. Carson said, quote, Belief in the New Testament is never reduced to forcing oneself to believe what he does not really believe. And I think that is so important for us to understand in this passage. Belief is never reduced to forcing oneself to believe what he does not really believe. Instead, it is related to genuine trust in God and obedience to and discernment of his will. And then Carson goes on and he says, though exercised by the believer, such faith reposes on the will of God who acts. End quote. In in other words, this is a kind of faith that rests in the will of God and trust him to do his work. And so the idea then is not to try to work up a belief that we really don't have, but instead it seems to be that we need to grow in our knowledge of God's will. And then we do have to pray and we have to ask God to do what, what he would have done. We have to ask him to accomplish his will. And as we do that, we have to have faith and not doubt. We have to trust him that he will do the things that he tells us he will do. And I think that's an area that we need to grow in and that I've been challenged this week that I need to grow in. But these are the kinds of prayer that God's answers. And, and, and this is how we're going to actually have real faith for God to accomplish impossible things. It's as we come to know him and grow in our knowledge of him through his word. 
And so these are the kinds of prayers that God answers. And let me, let me close with a, a few verses here that are kind of along the same line. First of all, thinking about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18, it says, In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so Abraham was told in the word of God by God that he would have this great offspring, that that nations would come from him and peoples would come from him. and, And he didn't weaken in faith when he looked around him and saw his own body, which was as good as dead. Or when he considered that, that Sarah's womb was barren. Verse 20 goes on and says, no unbelief made him waver. And that's the same word as, as in our text about doubt. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Or consider John chapter 14 and verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And John fifteen seven and 8, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See, the will of God is that we would bear much fruit and prove to be disciples of Christ. And Jesus says, if we come and, and we ask along those lines and we ask in his name, he will answer those prayers. Or again, in our text, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warning about fruitlessness this morning. And we thank you for the cure that by faith we can accomplish great things. Father, we pray that you would work in our lives to know you and trust you and have this kind of faith. We want to be a people of mighty faith. We want to see you glorified. We want to see prayers answered. We want to see mountains move to the glory of God. We want to see obstacles overcome. We want to be like Abraham who believed against hope and those who trust your word and don't waver that we would be those that ask in faith and again, see great things done for you. Father, we we want to see great things done and we, we feel like that man in the book of Mark that says, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. 
And even that, Lord, we know is the kind of prayer that you will answer because you want us to have this faith. You want us to be fruitful in our lives for your glory. Father, this morning we pray for any here that that might feel like they're unfruitful. And we pray that if that is true, that you will grant them repentance and faith and, and bring them to your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, if it's not true, we pray that you'd help them to recognize the fruit in their life and to continue to grow in fruitfulness to the glory of God. And we pray that you would use all of us, that this would be a a fruitful vine in your vineyard and that we would be a, a fruitful church, that we wouldn't be just leaves, Father, but that we would have real fruit that glorifies you on that day when we stand before you and before your son, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.